Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 6, Episode 34. Last week, I restarted the journey through Deuteronomy after spending many weeks covering the history of the Philistines. In that episode, I reviewed a few of the lesser-known and the unknown stops of the Israelites during their post-Exodus wanderings. Then, I covered the ancient history of Lebanon. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. In that episode, and due mostly to time pressures, I skipped over two significant mountains, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebel, with the promise I would pick them back up this week, which is true. And with that, let's get started. Mount Gerizim is one of the two mountains in the immediate vicinity of the West Bank city of Nablus, which surely doesn't sound familiar. In the Old Testament, it was called Shechem, more certain to ring a bell. Mount Gerizim is on the southern side of the valley where Shechem is located. The other mountain in this episode, Ebel, is to the north of the city. By most standards, the mountain isn't very tall, but for this particular region, it is. It's just short of 3,000 feet, 900 meters above sea level. Though, it's worth noting that the valley it rises from is well below sea level, so its slopes are longer than you might think. For the Samaritans, at least according to the roots of their religion, it's thought to be of particular importance, being the highest, oldest, and most central mountain in the world, at least to them. More on that in a minute. While the Israelites did hike to the top of Gerizim, they likely didn't do it on its steep northern side. Like most peaks in the region, and owing to the harsh desert climate, its top is spartanly covered with shrubs, but as you go down the slope, a spring suddenly appears, good enough for a decent freshwater source. Ebel is slightly taller than Gerizim, 230 feet, about 70 meters, and given the distance between the two, that difference is not discernible to the eye, which likely contributed to the Samaritans believing Gerizim was the tallest. As for Ebel, it's made of limestone, with the slopes of the mountain containing several large caverns, which were probably originally quarries, and at the base, towards the north, are several tombs. That'll come into play at the end of this episode. But that's not all. To the Samaritans, Gerizim is their version of the Jewish Temple Mount, chosen by God as the site of a holy temple, and it continues to hold a central role in their religion today. It doesn't hurt that most of the Samaritans in the world live within a stone's throw of the peak. When Jesus was referring to them, there may have been as many as one million in the region. Today, they number less than a thousand. But even with so few left, they still celebrate their Passover on the mountain. Going back in history before that event, they also think the mountain is where Abraham bound his son Isaac when God told him to do so. Do note that the source Jewish text, specifically the Masoretic text, the Septuagint, along with the Dead Sea Scrolls, their versions of Genesis say the event occurred on Mount Moriah, thought to have been later, 
after the Exodus and some history after that to have been renamed as the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. I'll cover the Samaritans in much more detail later. Just for now, know that they claim to be descended from the tribes of Ephraim, Manasseh, and Levi. With that in mind, it should come with little surprise that when a Samaritan converts to Judaism, among other things, they must first and foremost renounce any belief in the sanctity of Mount Gerizim. Circling back to the Old Testament, and more specifically to the book of Deuteronomy, in one of his speeches, Moses instructed the Israelites, immediately after they first entered Canaan, to celebrate the event with ceremonies of blessings and curses on Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. Blessings on Gerizim and curses on Ebal. There's been some speculation as to why Moses chose these peaks and why Gerizim for the blessings and Ebal for the curses. Obviously, their location just across the Jordan River was key as were their relative heights compared to the surrounding peaks and countryside in general. But there's more to it than that. Some believe that Gerizim was chosen for the blessing because, at least when compared to Ebal, that it was less rugged and more fertile. At least on its northern face, the one towards the valley where Shechem lay. This means the opposite was true too. Ebal was rockier and had less vegetation. All of this is relatively relative, as they both were found in the arid desert south of the Galilee region. The Masoretic text of the Old Testament records that the Israelites later built an altar on Mount Ebal, constructed from natural stones, natural meaning they were not cut. The stones were stacked and whitened with lime. Peace offerings were made on this altar. Then a meal was consumed. At some point, the words of the law were written on the stones. The Samaritan Pentateuch account of Deuteronomy, along with a fragment found at Qumram, instead claims that Moses told the people to build this altar on Mount Gerizim, and this is why the Samaritans placed their tabernacle on the mountain. Then there are the Dead Sea Scrolls. Recent interpretations seem to support the Mount Gerizim site. Whichever it was, Moses then told the people to split into two groups, with the tribes of Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali staying on Mount Ebal and pronouncing curses. The remaining tribes of Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin would hike up Jerusalem and pronounce blessings. While there have been attempts to explain why they were split in this manner, nothing conclusive has been decided until very recently, when someone did the math. If the census conducted in numbers is relied upon, then Moses' division is about as equal, at least in a numerical sense, that could occur, out of some 462 different combinations. As for the curses and blessings, the curses greatly resemble laws and can be found in Deuteronomy 27, curses such as Cursed be anyone who dishonors father and mother, almost straight from the Ten Commandments. Also, cursed be anyone who moves a neighbor's boundary marker. It would seem this could equate to the theft of land. Cursed be anyone who misleads a blind person on the road. 
Seemingly, these curses were a bit all over the place, but likely born from experience. It was these curses that were inscribed on the stones. The next chapter in Deuteronomy had the corresponding blessings, and they are much broader. Blessings like, Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. Which raises an interesting question. Is it cursed or cursed? Is it blessed or blessed? Take your pick. Mount Ebel also makes an appearance in the book of Joshua. After the Israelite victory over the forces of the city of Ai, Joshua built an altar of uncut stones on the mountain. At this point, Joshua repeats the act Moses had told the Israelites to do when they first crossed the Jordan. In Joshua's case, and is found in the book bearing his name, he built an altar on Mount Ebal to the Lord, just as Moses had commanded the Israelites. Then, the Israelites offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed offerings of well-being. And there, in the presence of the Israelites, Joshua wrote on the stones a copy of the Law of Moses. The text tells us that all Israel, alien as well as citizen, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark in front of the Levitical priest who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebel, as Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded that they should bless the people of Israel. And afterwards, Joshua read all the words of the law, blessings and curses. So comprehensive was his reading that the chapter wraps up by telling that there was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel, and the women, and the little ones, and the aliens who resided among them. Why did he do this, and why there? They had just defeated all the king's horses and all the king's men of Ai, and Ai was in the neighborhood of the two peaks, so the location was convenient. But that wasn't all. Joshua sought to do what the section header in the New Revised Standard Version calls it. He wanted to renew the covenant. Before moving on, it's worth noting that biblical researchers are in the midst of a debate concerning this part of the text and what and when Joshua did what he did. On one side, some follow the narrative as found in the text, the victory over Ai, Joshua building the altar, and the Israelites making offerings and sacrifices, followed by a reciting of the law. Simple enough. Others, though, think that the rendering is actually two separate accounts from two different incidents, spliced together at a later time. It works by thinking Joshua placed large stone slabs on the mountain that had been whitened with lime and then had the law inscribed on them. The sacrifices and offerings likely occurred at some other time. Later in the book of Joshua, as he was nearing his death, Joshua gathered the people together at Shechem, made statutes and ordinances for them, and wrote those in the book of the law of God. He took a large stone, and set it up there under the oak in the sanctuary of the Lord. The thinking of these researchers is that the three stories are all intermingled. 
They also believed that the book of Deuteronomy was likely finally written down after this, so well after Moses had given the speeches it records. I'll allow you to form your own opinions. Circling back to the mountains and altars on them, some researchers think the altars on the mountain may have predated the arrival of the Israelites. The text of the Old Testament does not preclude this thought. Those that do support the pre-Israelite altar hypothesis point towards the name of the mountain, Gerizim, thinking it may have been a derivative of the prior occupants of the land, the Gerzites. These people, the Gerzites, merited a single mention in the entirety of the Bible in 1 Samuel 27, when, together with the Gezerites and the Amalekites, they were all attacked by David and his men. Though the location given in the same sentence, that they were from the landed settlements of Telam on the way to Shur and on to the land of Egypt, this isn't quite in the right spot, putting them closer to the Philistines than to the mountains, the city of Shechem, in the Jordan. But then again, this was several hundred years after the crossing of the Jordan and the building of the altars, so they could have relocated the distance due to the military and economic pressure applied by the incoming Israelites. Some believe that the etymology of the name Gerizim yields the meaning of a mountain cut in two. Perhaps. There are also a few other things in the immediate vicinity of the mountains worth exploring. The first takes us forward in the history to the book of Judges in its telling of Jotham. Jotham was the youngest of Gideon's 70 sons. He hid, then escaped when his brothers were put to death by the order of his half-brother Abimelech. I'll have more on that when I get to the book of Judges. The reason I'm touching on it now is that in the narrative, the events unfolded around Shechem, and near there was a sanctuary of El Bereth, also known as Baal Bereth, meaning God of the Covenant. And in this case, recall that Baal was a catch-all Canaanite deity. Some researchers have suggested that the Joshua story about the site is remarkably similar to a covenant made there in Canaanite times, made to their deity Baal. In the narrative of Judges, the pillar that was in Shechem is apparently important enough to have given its name to a nearby plain, and this pillar is thought to have been an idol of El Bereth, which is similar to the Joshua story of a stone being set up as a witness to events and covenants. To be clear, a subset of these researchers think that the Israelite story is derived from the Canaanite one, but do recall that I've covered many instances where the incoming Israelites replace prior temples, idols, monuments, and altars with their own, to the point of burning or burying the previous Canaanite ones. My point is simple. Just because something replaces another thing that was there first doesn't directly mean that the later item derived wholly or even partially from the first. To this end, there is also in the narrative a story of an oak tree found in the area. I've mentioned this several times previously. This tree, which is presented as being near the altar, or at least near an altar, maybe right next to it, it's thought to be the same tree that Jacob, in the book of Genesis, 
the tree he buried the Canaanite idols under. This would make it a very old tree, at least 440 years, probably older. I don't know about the specific oak found there, but my parents, on the family farm, recently had to fell an oak tree that was rotting at the base, threatening to fall on the 130-year-old farmhouse. After it came down, when I was up there for Thanksgiving, I counted the rings, 372. So, a 4 to 500-year-old oak is certainly plausible. When that red oak fell, out of the hollow trunk came a nest of juvenile black snakes. Seriously. True story. I told my mother that the snakes don't bother me, as long as they don't talk. We both laughed, though a few others witnessing the slithering mess didn't quite understand. I call that a sorting mechanism. I took much of that oak and will use it to smoke this year's turkey. There's more to it, but that's a different story for a different audience. Back at the oak in Shechem, at the base of the mountains, a Jewish Midrash source claims one of the false idols buried by Jacob was that of a dove. The Midrash writer goes on to state that it was this dove that was later uncovered by the Samaritans and worshipped at their temple on Mount Gerizim. If you haven't quite figured it out, the Jewish people didn't like the Samaritans. This is why the parable told by Jesus used a Samaritan as the hero, the only good person in the story. I'll have much more on that at a later date. But for now, I'll focus on them as it relates to the mountains. At the end of the Babylonian captivity, a large division developed between the Samaritans and Judaism, with the Samaritans, but not the Jews, regarding Mount Gerizim as the holy place chosen by God. Then, during the Persian period, the Samaritans built a temple on the mountain, thought to have been sometime during the 5th century BC. Their belief was that it had been the actual location of the ancient Israelite temple, and had been destroyed by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. From this point forward, the religious tension between the Jews and the Samaritans led to the Samaritan temple of Jerusalem being destroyed by John Harkonnes in the 2nd century BC, at least according to Josephus. The Talmud records the demolisher as Simeon the Just. The actual date of its destruction on the annual calendar quickly became a holiday for the contemporary Jewish people. On that day, they were forbidden from eulogizing the dead. There was so much bad blood between these two groups, and hopefully it adds even more context to the parable. Despite the destruction of their temple, Mount Gerizim remained important to the Samaritans. We can see this in the Gospel of John, when Jesus spoke with the Samaritan woman. I'll resist quoting the entire passage and instead focus on the context of the mountain. In note, unlike the parable of the Good Samaritan, this is a recounting of a real encounter. John 4 reads, Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband, and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. 
what you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. There's another clue in the dialogue, and that's that the encounter occurred on, or at least near, Jerusalem. And the mountain and the Samaritan temple on it wasn't just mentioned in Jewish history. Roman coins minted in Shechem, though at the time the name had converted to Nablus, whatever the city name, the Roman coins were stamped with a depiction of their temple, implying that it had been rebuilt and since it was on the money, remained important. These coins date to between 138 and 161 AD, nearly 300 years after the previous structure was destroyed. They show a large temple complex, statues, and an impressive staircase that led from the city to the temple. A couple of hundred years later, Christianity would become the official religion of the Roman Empire, and they banned Samaritans from worshipping on the mountain and had a church built at its summit in 475. Things weren't quite done, though. In 529, Justinian I made Samaritism illegal and had a protective wall built around the church. That same year, this caused a revolt that was led by Julius ben Sabar, a messianic Samaritan. Within a year, his forces had captured most of Samaria and in the process destroyed churches and killed priests and government and church officials. Byzantine Emperor Justinian enlisted the help of the Gassanids. Then the revolt was completely suppressed, with most of the surviving Samaritans being either enslaved or exiled. Shortly after that, in 533, Justinian had a castle constructed on Mount Gerizim to protect the church from raids by the limited Samaritans who remained in the area. There's much more to this story too, like a self-declared king of Israel, beheadings, Persians, self-proclaimed messiahs, but it will all have to wait until I cover the Samaritans proper. The remains of the Justinian church can still be found atop the mountain. Remains that include the church wall, parts of the castle, and piles of stones. And many of these stones appear to have been repurposed by the Byzantines and were likely from the original Samaritan temple, perhaps the one destroyed in the 2nd century BC. To put that in context, the stones that can still be found on top of the mountain were there when Jesus was speaking with the Samaritan woman at the well. At the archaeological site were layer upon layer of ruins. And, since things tend to get built on top of older things instead of the other way around, the oldest ruins were at the bottom. And what was down there? A large stone structure built on top of the bedrock. And since it was on top of the bedrock, there couldn't have been anything older underneath. The structure was made almost entirely of unhewn limestone slabs, fitted together without any binding material, and had no internal rooms or dividing walls. Let's see, unhewn stone, white limestone, certainly sounds familiar. In a cistern cut into the bedrock on the northern side, were pottery shards and various other ceramics that dated to before the Greek era, 
meaning the unhewn stone structure did too. The structure was surrounded by a courtyard, similar to the platform above it. All total about 200 feet long, 130 feet wide, with walls 5 feet thick. For my metric-denominated listeners, this is about 60 by 40 meters and 1.5 meters thick, a significant structure. As for Mount Ebel, there are finds and ruins there too. On the upper part of the mountain, on its western side, there are ruins of a massive wall. There are also ruins on the eastern and northern sides. It's these northern ruins that are the most interesting. Here were found pottery fragments that date to between 1220 and 1000 BC. If you go with the earliest date, this would have been just as, or right after the Israelites crossed the Jordan. There is also a large stone pile. In the late 20th century, an excavation uncovered a large walled structure built directly into the bedrock and without a door, but infilled with stone, ash, and dirt. Walls, potentially a roof, but no way in. Found at the site were also the burnt bones of goats, deer, and oxen. This is beginning to sound familiar, like burnt sacrifices familiar. There are those who think it may have been an Assyrian altar, or something else entirely. And like so many things in the archaeological record, we may never have enough physical evidence to conclusively know. And that provides me with a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week, when I'll continue working my way through the book of Deuteronomy. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week. Thank you.